Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goal. Thank you, everyone, for joining today's episode of How Did You Do It Real Estate Podcast. I am your host, Sayla Prack. Today, I am honored to be joined by Glenn Gonzalez. Glenn is the CEO, partner, and co-founder of Obsidian Capital Co. He is an entrepreneurial individual with over 30 years of real estate experience. Since 1994, Glenn has been an instructor for multiple apartment associations, including Utah, Washington, and San Antonio. Glenn also owned and grew Place 10 Residential, a Dallas-based property management firm with 6,500 units under management, which it has been sold as of late of 2018. Prior to own place, Glenn spent many years working in multifamily and commercial property management with companies such as Equity Residential, Evergreen Management Group, Glacier Management, and gained a great deal of experience at specific property company, a valued investment firm. He is also a licensed real estate broker in multiple states, and received the CPM, Certified Property Manager, designation from IREM. Over Glenn's time in business, he has acquired and sold many multifamily properties on the ownership side, primarily in Texas, and is continuing to aggressively and profitably expand Obsidian Capital portfolio. Glenn has owned over 4,500 apartments throughout his investment career. So it's a great honor to have you on a podcast today, Glenn. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for that awesome introduction. Kind of makes me feel old, <laughs> to be honest with you. Not at all. all that stuff, not at so. all. It's an amazing background that you have. And we are great honor to have you on a podcast today and learn everything, like how you get to where you're at today. So without further ado, Glenn, can you yeah. tell us? I'll listen a little bit more about yourself and how did you get started with real estate 30 years ago? Yeah, it's a journey. So I won't take up your whole show just explaining that, but I really got introduced into the industry years and years ago when I was a maintenance man for an apartment complex. And I was going to college at the time. And my wife at the time had asked if I would be help, if I'd be willing to help do some work orders because they were getting behind on work orders. And I, mm-hmm said, sure. So I started doing little tasks here and there. And I got to be honest, say that I was so jealous because the people that were in the office were talking on the phone and they had, I was working outside and it snowed there. So I'm putting rock salt on the, on the sidewalk, salt melt, excuse me, and, and shoveling. And it was cold outside. I wanted to be inside. I'm like, I want their job. Mm-hmm. So I went and I asked the regional, uh, next time they came to the property, it's like, Hey, do you think I can ever learn how to be a manager? And they're like, aren't you the maintenance man? I, I sure am. And they're like, well, why don't you go back to doing maintenance? I'm like, oh, that, that was not nice, right? right. So <laughs> they did call me not too long ago or not too long after that. And they said, hey, look, we got this 60-unit apartment complex and it needs kind of a part-time manager and a part-time maintenance guy. I can't really afford a, a full-time. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm in. So I actually moved on site. I was the manager and the maintenance guy. And that's kind of what got me going. I was going to college to get my bachelor's degree in behavioral science and health so I could be a hospital administrator. But I did an internship at a hospital and realized 
that's not what I want to do for the rest of my life. So I stayed in property management. Like you said on the introduction, I got my broker's license. I got my CPM designation. And then I learned to be a regional manager. And then I worked for a company that did tax credits and Section Section 42 stuff. So I got more and more experience. And and you mentioned equity residential. Mm -hmm. That was a great REIT. It's a big real estate investment trust. And at the time I was working as an employee for them, they had 220,000 units. Sam Zale, rest in peace, was the CEO of the company. He founded it. So it was kind of cool to learn from great, great people. And so that's kind of how I got my foot in the door. But then later, just like I said, the main, the manager and the leasing office were sitting in the office and I wanted that job. Well, when you're in property management long enough, you realize the people that are making the big bucks are those people that either invested in them or owned them. I was managing them, but I was not getting wealthy by any means. I was just collecting a paycheck. So that was always my dream. And to be honest with you, I didn't have two nickels to dime to rub together. It was a tough time. And I had, I've come across a couple of mentors that taught me how to buy apartment complexes. As a matter of fact, all of these things that I've shared with you are actually in a book that I wrote called Maintenance Man to Millionaire. Have you heard of that? No, I have not. But actually, yeah. I saw your biography and yeah. like you mentioned about your book. And I was yeah. like, wow, I want to ask more questions about that. Yeah. So that kind of gives you a little bit of an introduction on how I got into property management. And I learned a lot for years and years and years. And I always wanted to own real estate and because my family didn't have money. I had to put myself through college, partially as a maintenance guy and partially working at the Marriott as a waiter. So it was a journey. It was very, very difficult. I mean, it was a hard one to get going because I'll tell you this, that when you want to buy an apartment complex and you want to ask somebody for millions of dollars, first thing they're going to ask you is, have you ever done this before? And my answer was no, this is my first one. You know, I was trying to buy a 200 unit deal down in San Antonio and nobody wanted to give me a check for the first one. But since you have listeners that are investors and you, that first deal that I did with them had a 48 IRR. And I'm like, that was awesome, right? So those guys that passed on it, and I'll tell you, trying to raise that first nine out of 10 people told me no. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, call me when you've done more deals. You got more experience. And I'm like, ah, but this one's a good deal. And they're like, well, probably is. And I'm like, trust me, I've been in property management. I know a good deal when I see one. Mm-hmm. I'm like, call me when you've done a couple more. And I'm like, because syndication is kind of a tough thing to do. But I knew it was a good deal. And we raised the money, my business partner, and we returned a 48 IR to those investors. Then those that passed on it, right? The ones that told me no, I called them and I said, guess what this deal did? I was bragging <laughs> a little bit. And so they said, well, congratulations. If you come across another one, send it my way. And I did. I sent them some their way and they would bought it. And then along the way... Selah, I got really blessed. I was very fortunate. And a friend of mine of 10 years, 12 years, his name is Ed. When he was 70 years old, I said, hey, if you ever get old and you want to retire, call me. I'll buy your company from you. I was thinking about the management company at the time. But he always said, no, 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 no. And when he turned 80 years old, he said, hey, look, maybe it is time. Because he was very, very active in real estate for years and years and years. And so he sold me eight apartment complexes, about 1,500 mm-hmm. units. And I had to go raise equity on 1,500 units. And we used family offices. We used, gosh, 
private equity firms. We used crowdfunding. There were a couple of crowdfunding was starting to emerge. So anywhere I could raise the money, but those eight apartment complexes, that seller had them so far under market that we and our investors made a lot of money during that time. And that's when I had the management company, that place 10 that you had referred to earlier, we were self-managing. We had owned about four or 5,000, but we were managing for other friends as well. So those were good times. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's an amazing, inspiring story. Thank you so much for sharing, Glenn. And like you're purchasing your first property. Was it 240 units? No, no. My very, very first one happened in a small town called Puyallup, Washington. And it is kind of close to Tacoma, Washington. And I had a mentor of mine. I was sitting on the board of directors for the Washington Apartment Association. They call it WUMFA, the Washington Multifamily Housing Association. And John Gibson also sat on that board of directors as well. He sat right across from me. We chit-chat. And here's a very, very successful, very wealthy man. And I asked his opinion. I said, hey, I'm looking at buying this little 60-unit deal in Tacoma. Would you mind just looking at it and give me your advice? And John said, it may or may not do okay. He's like, but I got a better deal for you. What deal do you have? He's like, it's a small 40-unit deal. And in Puyallup, I'm like, where's Puyallup? I had to look it up. And he's like, I'll tell you what, I'll carry it as a note, put $150,000 down as a down payment. I'm like, $150,000? I'm like, that's a lot of money. I don't have $150,000. So that was my first kind of baby syndication. I went to my boss and a contractor that I did work with. And they each, I told them, hey, why don't we have to raise $150,000? Why don't we each go in partners, third to third, and you guys give seventy-five and seventy-five? Mm-hmm. And they said, well, that math doesn't add up. If we're equal partners, where's your money? And I'm like, I don't have any money. I found the deal. I put it together and we're going to do great. And so I said, but here's the deal. You get paid before I do, right? And this is before I even knew what syndication was. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. So it was only 40 units. And so they put up the money. We managed it for about a year and a half and then sold it for about a million and a half more and we paid for it. Wow. Right? So my partners got their money back, their 150 grand. And then we split a very large check three ways. Right? And so I was hooked at that point. You can make some money in ownership if you do it right and you find the right deal. Mm-hmm. So that was the very first deal. And it was that 200 unit one that I talked about in San Antonio that was actually technically it was my second deal. But it. it was my first one that I really called a syndication because I had eight or nine investors in there. So Got it. And before you got into your first syndication, you earlier you mentioned that you met a couple mentors. How do you meet your mentors and how do you know that they are the right people that you wanted to work with or like taking advices from? Yeah, that's a great question. And for your listeners, I think everybody should have a mentor, to be honest with you. So my very first mentor, his name is Dale Longhurst. Uh, so shout out to Dale. And he brought me in. It was with that company where I was a maintenance man and then a property manager and then a regional manager. And I stayed with this gentleman for years and years and years. And I became the director of operations with this small company. I, underneath him, he was a CPM. I got my CPM designation. And then I also got my broker's license. So he really was kind of teaching me all the steps along the way. And then finally, out of the blue, he's like, you're fired. I'm like, what? Good. He's like, yeah, I'm firing you. I'm like, why would you fire me? I said, I got my whole heart and soul tied up into this company. 
And he's like, because Glenn, he's like, you need to go do great things. He's like, oh. we're a small company. We will never be what you potentially could be. And I'm like, so you're firing me? It just didn't make sense. He's like, trust me, you're going to soar like an eagle. You're going to land on your feet, as they say, and you'll be just fine. And I'm like, so you're firing me. You know, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. But what I did is I put my resume together. I went out there aggressively and he was right. I got hired right away by a company that did all tax credits, new construction, and it was probably triple the size of his company. And I learned a lot and was very, very successful there. And then I got recruited to go work for Equity Residential in the Mm -hmm. Pacific Northwest. But I look back and when Dale said he was going to cut me loose so I could soar like an eagle, I didn't have the self-confidence. I didn't really have the experience, but he saw in me something that I didn't see in myself. And because of that, I have such a great deal of respect for Dale for boldly sending me out into the world because I felt like, to some degree, he was like my dad. He taught me everything he knew, and then he sent me out there to go conquer the world. (laughs) So Dale was my very first kind of mentor, per se, and a dear friend to this very day. And then that second mentor is the one that actually owned the apartment complex, Mm -hmm. John, the one that sold me that one on contract, the little 44-unit deal. So those Mm -hmm. are my two mentors in this industry. And of course, I've learned more from great, great people along the way. I feel like in this industry, you should always be like a sponge, just trying to learn from from absorb great as much knowledge as possible. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually coming to you today. I'm sitting in somebody else's office. I'm here to visit a family office, a a private equity group that has done three or four deals with me. They're in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm here to visit one of the properties that I own, but also to look at an off market. And so I'm visiting their office because I'm going to ask them for a big check. It's not her, but it's somebody else. And then tour this deal. So the guy that I'm here to visit, he's a great guy too. He's taught me a lot. And he raises money, millions and millions of dollars and puts it in real estate. And he's put it in four deals with me in the past. So he's taught me a lot too, right? So just, so you're basically just, learning from everyone's and basing on the your encounters along the way throughout yeah. your journey as well. Yeah, yeah. And so when you've been in the midst business 30 years, like I have, and you've learned all these little golden nuggets along the way, really what it translates into is when I put together a real estate deal, Mike's my business partner, Mike and I could jump into a deal and we can analyze it and we could figure out what the upside is, the potential risks, because we've done it for so long. We've touched so many pieces of real estate, both on the operational side, the acquisition side, the disposition side just all kinds. I've managed properties for banks when they were being foreclosed on. I have brought them out of bankruptcy. I remember I got hired. There was one that was put into bankruptcy. The bank hired me to manage it for the bank, right? For the bankruptcy court, basically, as a third party. And I brought that thing to a successful exit. And actually, those investors got all their money back. So it had a bad sponsor at the time. The sponsor to put it together was kind of failing. But yeah, so you learn a lot of stuff. Yep, from different mentors and your business partners along the way. And you mentioned earlier about sponsors and based on your 30 years of experience of buying apartments, what do you see some of the mistakes that like other sponsors make when they're buying an apartment complex or multifamily apartment? Sure, that's a great question. I've seen it firsthand. I think most importantly that I see 
kind of most often a, a novice sponsor might make is they're sitting behind their computer, they're looking at the spreadsheet, and the deal might only have a three or four percent cash on cash. So what they do is they log on like, well, if we could raise the rent just twenty percent more over first year or two, then do that will juice my bottom line to a six or seven percent cash on cash. But just because you sit behind a computer and you say you get 20% more doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the market's going to bear after mm-hmm. you buy it. So some people start believing their own stories that they could do all this magic with the real estate without really doing their homework and realizing what's actually going on truly in that marketplace. You can look at a report, you can look at statistics, but if you don't get out there and go kick the tires, interview the manager, go, go look at all their competitors. Mm-hmm. Not the competitors that the property management or the brokers say are the great competitors. Go look at all of them, the ones that aren't on the report. See what they're charging for their rents, what condition they're in. And then you'll learn what real, accurate information really is. Because by the time it hits CoStar or some quarterly report or look back on halfway through the year, those numbers are old. Right? Mm-hmm. But we're making decisions today based on reports that were printed a month ago or two months ago. A lot could change in a month or time. You're going to see that in the next few months to Mm -hmm. a year. You're going to see a lot of real estate flooding the marketplace. We'll get to that in a little while. But to answer your question, that's one mistake. The other one is the amount of money to fix. If any of your listeners ever syndicate and do uh, value add or rehabs, oftentimes there's just not enough money to fix everything. So you could fix the roofs, you could fix the downspouts, you could fix the parking lot. But a lot of times it may forget that even the foundation Mm -hmm. in Texas, there's lots of foundations that move, right? So you could fix the foundation, but they forget, oh, when the foundation moved, it crushed half the pipes that were underneath it. Oh, I didn't budget anything for that. Mm -hmm. Another common mistake is the concrete trip hazards, stairwells, handrails, People neglect to look at all of those things when they do their renovations and stuff. So I have seen firsthand, I managed firsthand for sponsors that did not raise enough money to fix all the problems, but yet they're still trying to get that 25 or 30% more in rent, but they haven't fixed all the problems. Well, that's a disconnect, right? Right. So, yeah. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us, because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. Yeah, thank you so much, Glenn, for sharing that. And also, it's like based on your experience as a property manager as well and maintenance as well, right? What are some of the things that apartment owners neglecting, right? In terms of, you mentioned earlier, they did not raise enough capital to fix all those nuances and repair all those broken parts and everything, right? But from your experience, so what's some of the best practices for managing a properties? Yeah, great question as well. You got some great questions here. You've probably heard this before, the four Ps, the people, the product, 
the emotion, how you're going to promote the property, the price on it. If you don't have the right people in place, I'll give you a prime example. I'm going through it right now. If you don't have a manager and a maintenance guy or a maintenance person on the same page, like working together, then they are actually working against each other in terms of organization, turning units, customer service, all of the above, right? And those managers and maintenance people, they need direction. You know, I've been using a third-party management company lately, and, and I'm a little frustrated right now. It's probably bad time to be on your show with that because that management company, I've had four regional managers trying to supervise the staff. And these four different regional managers in an eight or nine-month period of time all had a different opinion. One fired the maintenance supervisor. One promoted the manager. Next one came in. Manager's not doing good. Fired the manager. Hired another maintenance person. In the meantime, my property's occupancy is going like this. Collection went down. And when I asked the management company, it's like, look, you need to take control of this. You know, their answer is like, oh, we're going to get a better regional. So I'm on to another regional, right? And I'm like, so if you're going to own it and use third party, you got to manage the third party. Mm -hmm. If you're going to own it and manage it yourself, you better know what you're doing, right? right? Because management's a tough business, whether you're doing it third party or you do it for yourself. It's a tough, tough business. Yes, it is. You can't take your eye off the ball ever, right? Ever. Yeah, I also experienced firsthand. My parents also owns a single family rentals and small multi around here. So like going to collecting rent, taking phone calls with like uh, toilets broken and all the kind of stuff. It's a lot yeah. of work. So making sure that you're keeping track of all those. So I resonate with that when you mentioned all that, Glenn. And also in the current environment, at the time of the recording of this episode is in uh, mid-July. So how did you feel about capital raising for new deals nowadays? Any advices or suggestions for the sponsors to do to making sure that they can have a successful capital raise? Yeah, everybody's got their own formula. So it's hard for me to say what's best for structuring syndicated deals. I think across the board, what you can do for any investor, whether it's a long-term hold, a short-term hold, there's some that are higher risks and that are lower risk, and all of those different elements of investing I would say that if you can be transparent with the investors, fully transparent, give them all the reports, don't wait for them to ask, just give it to them. If they don't want to read it, that's fine. There's always good news and there's always bad news in real estate. If you've been in business long enough, you know what? The gate's going to get hit by some tenant and it's going to cost $15,000 to fix. The pool's going to crack or something's going to happen. Don't be afraid to tell investors what's really going on, right? Right. Most of them are sophisticated to know anyways, right? Right. So if the report's not adding up, they look at the numbers and like something's not right. Most of them are smart enough because they've earned money Mm -hmm. in their life and career enough to be an investor. So just be honest with them. At the end of the day, just tell them the truth. Don't tell them what they want to hear. I mean, if you've got great news, share the great news. If it's bad news, share the bad news. But what they really need to do is trust you that you're watching out for their money. Right. And then in this current environment right now, do you have any recommendation or suggestions to operators out there and also including the limited partners as well? What they can do to limit their potential downturn? Like you mentioned earlier, there's a possibility that a lot of deals are going to be coming in on the market. But what can they do to limit their risk? 
Yeah, I'll give you an example of what I'm faced with right now. One of my deals. How's that? We that in, the, in the North Austin area, we built one from the ground up. So when we put together our offering, we said, hey, look, here's the plan. You put your money in, you're not going to get a distribution in the first year or two mm-hmm. because we got to build them first. But we'll give you a pref so you're kind of earning along the way. And the plan is after we get full, we're going to refinance out of that construction loan and we will return to you half of your equity during a refinance. And then we're going to hold it long term. Well, dot, 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 right? During that time, there was a moment when we were building and the lumber prices went up 30, 40, 50%. I got, I was one of those guys. Dang it, right? So I covered the cost. So I didn't have to go back to the investors. They were grateful. The bank actually lent a little more and I put a little more equity in, but I didn't want to go back and do a cash call. Now we're leasing it up and doing pretty well, but I want to refinance out. Guess what? Banks are lending less money, Mm -hmm. right? Less leverage. So when I underwrote the deal, we were hoping to get a 75%, 80% loan to value based on the in-place rents after the lease up. But now they're only giving like a 65%. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's still constructed or constrained by the DCR, right? So mm-hmm. the debt coverage ratio. So you got that limitation. Well, if the interest rate, if it's really at 6% or five and three quarter on some of these long-term loans, it was four back when we started building them. You know what I mean? So long story short, I can't refinance out and return half the money to the investors. So what I'm going to do is call them all during the refinance or right before the refinance, which we're, it's coming up here shortly. I'm going to say, hey, investor, I know we promised you this. We don't make promises. Here's what our plan was when we built the deal, right? So if you want, I could see if somebody wants to buy your shares from you, or we're just going to refinance and leave all the equity in, and it's going to be a long-term hold for us. Mm Mm-hmm. And the investors can make their own decision. Some will say, you know what? I was only in it for a small amount of time. I wanted the pop. So some of them may say, yeah, just sell my shares for me. Mm-hmm. And I got to go find somebody to buy their percentage ownership. Or some may say, you know what? It is what it is. It's still in a good market. You're leasing. It's got cash flow. Why don't you go ahead and just leave my money in there? Right? right. When you have 20 investors, I guarantee you, Half of them are going to say one thing and half of them are going to say another thing because the lending environment and the economics behind it has changed. Right. Right. They all came in with a game plan, but guess what? That game plan doesn't work today. Unfortunately, sponsors are going to be faced with the same dilemma. Our investors went into deals with sponsors two, three, maybe four years ago. And today that environment looks so much different. Right. So... All goes back to what I said earlier. Just talk to the investors. Just be open with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, be transparent. If they're watching the news, they already know what's going on. Right. <laughs> they already know what's going on with politics. They already know what's going on with interest rates. They all know what's going on with lending. Even in today, there's banks that are kind of struggling, right? We've got right. bailing out banks again. So a lot of things going on, lots of moving parts in real estate and finance. So so my advice is just talk to them yep. you know, and put your best forward as a sponsor and talk to them. Thank you, Glenn. So for the sponsors that listening right now, basically just have all your plans like ready option one, option two, option three for your investors, right? So that they can make the decisions on their own about the deal. And for the investor, just be more flexible and open-minded that the current environment is basically not the same as compared to three years ago where a bad operator can just purchase anything and it would be going up anyway, right? Yeah. Right now, 
it's a time to evaluate your operators, like the best one that stay long term for 30 years, like Glenn, know the in and out, like up and down through multiple recession. They know what they're doing. Yeah. It's just that the environment is just not as good as the last three years. But now is the time to weed the bad ones, like the bad operators out there. So. Yeah. Thank you so much, Glenn, for that suggestions and advice. And so, Glenn, so based on your 30 years experience, I know you don't have the crystal ball and you already, oh, you know, been up and down. I do have a crystal you ball. Do. You do yeah. have a crystal ball. <laughs> Left it at home. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> but based on your experience in the last 30 years, so with the current environment, what do you think what's happening in the next like half of the 2023 and 2024 for the multifamily space? Yeah. I think if we're just patient and sit on the sidelines for a bit, you're going to see cap rates go on up a little bit, mm-hmm. right? So the going in cap rates in the solid markets, let's say they were four, four and a half, five percent, the really, really strong markets, they were three and three quarter. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to see those going up, right? And so they'll be a little more realistic. And it's mostly going to be the people that were in bridge loans or anything variable that will be willing to kind of step out first, they'll be forced. I don't think the interest rates are going to stay high forever. My personal opinion, it will go right up until the elections. And then our politicians is going to try and our Federal Reserve is supposed to be not tied to politics. There's politics going on. So posture and everything else. So I think they could stabilize a little bit. I would say been in business for a long time. I knew that those two, three, and 4% interest rates were very fortunate. Yep. When my parents bought their first house, they were paying 12% interest. Yep. And I remember when I bought my first house, it was 7% interest, right? That was yep. years and years ago for you young people. But so where's the happy medium? Say, so where is it where it's a healthy economy? You got to say it's probably in the 5 to 6% range. Mm-hmm. So when you can pencil deals at a 5 or 6% interest rate and it works... I think that that's a safe place to land and you know, rents aren't going to go up forever, right? right. Rents right. have been outpacing inflation and wages for about six years now, right? And now people are kind of like, I can't afford it anymore. That person's actually going to move out of that nice A property and maybe into an A minus or a B plus property. They may or they may not, or they may go and try to negotiate with the landlord and say, hey, instead of a $200 rent increase, why don't you give me $100 and I'll stay? And guess what? They might take it. You know what I mean? So anyway, that's my two cents from my crystal ball. I think the cap rates are going to tick up just a little bit. And that interest rate over time, closer to the elections, will possibly come down just a tad. Awesome. Glenn, thank you so much. And you touched base a little bit about your book, Maintenance Man to Millionaire. Can you tell us a little bit more about your book? What inspired you to write the book and possibly a couple highlighted points on the books that our listeners... Yeah. First of all, they can get it on Amazon, right? So you just type in my name, Glenn Gonzalez, or you type in Maintenance Man to Millionaire, they can get it. But really, I'll tell you one story, and I love stories, so hopefully your listeners do too. But... I was sitting at a conference and we were introducing ourselves. It was a small group of mastermind and there was probably 30 people in the room and they hadn't yet got to me, but the guy across the table says, I, he stood up. He's like, my name is so-and-so and I didn't recognize his name. He goes, I want to introduce that guy right over there. And he mm-hmm. pointed at me and I'm like, who is this guy? I look around and I'm like, do I know him? And I didn't recognize him. And I'm like, ah, oh, crap. What's he going to say? He's like, I was buying an apartment complex from him. 
like, oh, here we go. What did I do wrong? (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, and right before closing, about three days before closing, this, the boiler and the chiller went out on the community. It was a very older, it was an older Mm -hmm. property and it was an old chiller and it was very expensive. It was $150,000 to get it kind of fixed. And it's the day before closing. I went to a business partner of mine that was part owner in it. And he said, there's nothing he could do. His earnest money is already non-refundable and he's already paid his deposit to the lender and it's going to close in like 72 hours. So not our problem. Dude, if somebody did that to me, I'd be so mad. And mm-hmm. I said, we should buy him a new chiller. And my that partner at the time was like, there's no way. I'm like, yeah. So I got an argument with my own partner, yeah. but it was over. You just want to do the right thing. You just got to do the right thing. Yeah. Right? So even though I was at odds with this guy, now all of a sudden, five or six months later, I got some guy standing in a room looking me in the eye and said, that man did the right thing. Mm-hmm. And there I am in the room with the same guy, which... It's just what you do to one, what comes around goes around. I don't know. Exactly. There's a lot of things I could say here. You know, I'm a a religious guy. So some people call it karma, whatever. But if you do the right thing, you'll be blessed. And if you don't, well, you don't. Right. But that story was written by the broker that put that deal together. Because a lot of nine times out of 10, those are the times of things that will blow up a deal or the buyer and the seller will get at odds with each other. And sometimes it triggers lawsuits. Mm-hmm. But you just do the right thing. So that story is in the book. Yes. And really, it's the journey of how I've made millions of dollars in multifamily when I just started off as a maintenance man. And it's got all the little nuggets that I've learned along the way. Not only does the book talk and allude to some of the successes, but I'll be honest with you, say that it also talks about the failures. Because if you've been in real estate long enough, you're not always going to hit a home run. And those sad stories are in the book. I'm not going to tell you what they are. You got to go read it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for, for like an overview already. So, but yeah. yeah, the message here is doing the right things. Like in this business, multifamily, it's such a small space. Like owners and buyers eventually know each other. And the names actually float around. If you hear the company's name or you hear the names of the seller, you can tell right away, like the buyer wanted to deal with this headache, buying a property from this seller, or the seller wanted to deal with this headache, like selling the property to this difficult buyer, right? So it's such a small space, a small niche that doing the right thing is the right message here. And when you do that frequently, you get surrounded with people of like minds, right? So the old business partner that I had, he's probably surrounded by like-minded and he's probably thinking the same thing and so are people doing business with him. But now my partner that owns 50% of Obsidian Capital, Mike Woodfield, he not only has very, very high standards, a high level of integrity, but the dude is so smart that he crosses every T, dots every I, Mm -hmm. and he actually makes me look good, right? And so when I go and find a deal, if Mike says it's achievable and we could do a deal, it's the best partner you can ever ask for in another human being that has the same standards that you do and that works harder than you do. So I don't know, there's a chapter in my book called Good Partner, Bad Partner, right? And so, because there are good people out there, but there's also some bad people out there. So, and sometimes you don't know that they're bad until you're in a sticky situation and their true colors, as they say, shine through. 
So fortunately, I've seen Mike's tough times and he always makes good choices. So I'm blessed to have a very, very good partner in my life. That's awesome. I'm going to go and purchase your book right now and start reading them this weekend. And yeah. <laughs> so Glenn, so I have one final question for you. So what is one thing that sets successful people apart in real estate investing business? Yeah, the eye for the right deal. There's always deals out there. There's yep. deals everywhere. But it takes a certain person to find the right deal. If you find the right deal, you'll be successful. So I bought some that I thought were the right deal and they weren't successful. But I've learned over the years, thank goodness, I've got a very good track record. 99% of the time, they're pretty good deals. So Awesome. Glenn, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I know you're on your business trip and really appreciate you taking a carve out your time doing your business trip and, and doing a podcast interview with me, sharing about your real estate journey, sharing about your book, like sharing with our listeners about your insight, what's happening yeah. in the multifamily space with your 30 years experience, <laughs> that golden nuggets right there. So Glenn, yeah. if our listener wanted to find out more about you, your company, or reaching out to you or invest with you, where can they go? My email is Glenn with two N's at obsidiancapitalco.com. It's also available on our website, obsidiancapitalco.com or out and about at a lot of the conferences. I love meeting new people. So if they want to reach out to me, that's fine. If they want to talk about my book, that's fine. They don't have to read it, <laughs> uh, but it's an honor being on your show. And it's not always available for me to share the things that I feel so passionate about. So I can't thank you enough for allowing me to be on your show because I know you've got lots of choices of people that want to come and talk about real estate. So thank you for hosting. No, oh, thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Glenn. You're welcome. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Sayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.